morning, good afternoon, good night. Welcome back, everybody, to episode 141 of the Craft Heads podcast, the podcast about nothing but also everything where each episode is something different. And we have a drink or a beer, cocktail, spirit, wine, what have you, every episode. That's that's the one thing that is constant across all the episodes. Uh, this is one of your hosts, Alex, while Tommy is taking a much-needed golf weekend trip with some of the homies. Hope he's enjoying himself. And uh, before we begin, uh, I, I don't do this every single time, and we don't subject you guys to ads, uh, so I'm just going to uh, subject you to an ad for ourselves, just as a reminder. Uh, we do have a website now. It's nothing special, but it's basically for, for those of you who listen and enjoy the show and support us and whatever, the best thing you can do is tell people about us. And um, you can just send them to craftheadspodcast.com. It has all the links uh, for people to listen you know, on their platform of choice. Uh, obviously, you can visit our Patreon where you can support us even at the, there's a couple different tiers, but even the most basic level, $1 per month, that gets you access to our our community Discord. And just so everybody knows, I do at least monthly uh, crypto giveaways uh, for all uh, supporting and paying patrons at any level. And uh, they're not they're not tiny either. It's not like five dollars. Last one I just did was twenty five. And uh, lastly, if you ever have any questions, comments, feedback, concerns, whatever, and um, you know you don't, you're not connected with me directly, or you're not and you're not a supporter or whatever, uh, you can always email us at craftheadspodcast at gmail dot com. But anyways, uh, diving in here just to let everybody know who's on the podcast today. Of course, I have my wife Tara. Hello. Regular contributor of CHP. And we have a returning guest, maybe one of the most, maybe you might have been on more than anybody else at this point, Yaley. Uh, well, oh, wow. Kaylee, you'll, you'll hear me use those interchangeably, but he was last on the uh, the Valentine's Day special, if you will, on episode uh, 138. So welcome back, Yaley. Thank you. Um, this is probably my most uh, highly anticipated episode with you. And I'm happy Tara is with us too. Uh, yeah, absolutely. We've been planning this one for over, uh, actually, a couple of weeks now. Um, so this, the reason this one's going to be a little different and, and really cool, I think, is Yaley is sort of going to be leading, I say in quotes, this episode in the sense that we are going to be talking about the show uh, Midnight Mass, uh, which is a Netflix exclusive that came out, I think, in like fall or, or Halloween of 2021, so pretty recent. And... Um, Tara and I only just watched it uh, just, I don't know, a few weeks ago, and that's what started this whole conversation. And we were initially going to do it as sort of an addendum to the next movie rundown, which, by the way, is also coming out. Tara and I have another list of movies we're going to go through. But we enjoyed it so much and wanted to take a deeper dive. Uh, And whenever I was texting Yaley about it, he expressed interest in in not only doing joining and to talk about it, but also to go a little deeper on religion and spirituality as a whole and how it affected all of us, actually, but especially Kaylee, hence why he asked about it. So we're going to talk about Midnight Mass, and then we're going to have, uh, honestly, a very open-ended and general discussion about religion and spirituality after that. There will be a timestamp for whenever we stop talking about like Midnight Mass directly with all the story beats and everything else, but as a general rule of thumb, we are going to let spoilers fly, and that's probably going to go throughout the whole show. So if you are interested, I can tell you it's only seven episodes. It's a limited run, seven hour total investment, which is not much at all. You know, I can't stand when people recommend shows to me too frequently, but considering it's, it's pretty short. Um, I think you'll, uh, the average person could easily get very sucked into it. And we, we watched it in what two sittings, Tara. 
Yep. I think. I so. think we broke it up. We did a one night stint of like three or four episodes. Mm-hmm. And then the next day we picked it up like we midday. We're like, all right, yeah, here we go. Oh, it's how'd you guys stop so. at three? Three is like probably the most intriguing episode, in my opinion. Oh, it, I think it, it was like time of night. It was a week night and it was already, you know, 10 or 11 or something. And we were re-watching it with friend James and he gets up early, you know, so ah, um, yeah. I remember he, he had he had just watched it. It was a so he had just watched it. It was a Thursday night. Um, and I think he had Friday off. So we mm, stayed up yeah. until like 10 or 11. I think we made it through like three or four episodes that night. I can't remember. We just finished it after work on Friday. So Alex, I actually refrained from telling you about this show specifically because you don't want people to recommend too many shows to you. But that being said, and something that we also discussed was the fact that, at least in my opinion, and I, I think you'll agree with me that the limited series seems to be becoming more of a prominent thing on mm-hmm. all like streaming platforms. I'm a massive fan. Same. I Same. think it's like good storytelling can't, it can be done in a, in like a lengthy movie, but I don't want to sit down that long necessarily. And by breaking it up with episodes, I think it keeps it fresh. It keeps it interesting and you can really pour a lot more into a story that way rather than just a one sitting with a movie. Yeah, it's it's the perfect compromise. I mean, I, we joke about that a lot. Everybody knows, anybody who knows me knows that about me with the whole show recommendation thing. And it's that I'm being facetious when I say this. It's a very audacious thing to ask of somebody. You're basically, when you tell them to watch a show that's six seasons long, it's basically saying like, hey, uh, give me 65 hours of your time. Um, no. Unless it's Sopranos, and then it's okay. <laughs> well, well in, in that case, it's objectively correct, and it makes you a better person having seen yes. it, because yep. it's the best show of all time. But um, Okay, so we made it, what, like 10 minutes in, not even, and got, managed to hit on the Sopranos? Yep. Okay, so yeah. before we, uh, before I just totally give uh, Yaley the reins here to start us off with the show and give us a sort of a plot summary and everything, um, I didn't cover the drink yet, and this drink will become uh, more appropriate as we get into the show and you hear more about it and we discuss it. But this is called uh, the Ruby Queen, and I'm holding it up for, for Yaley to see because of the, the, for a cocktail, the relative viscosity of it, and more importantly, Ooh. the deep ruby red color. And, Wait, that's um, a cocktail? Yes. It looks like oh. blood. It, it, it looks, looks like, like blood. It looks like wine. Which is fitting for the, show, for the show. It, it tastes a lot better, though. But um, and and we finally got our coupe glasses finally, so you'll start seeing those show up appropriately in the episode images. But it is um, scotch, beet juice, lemon juice, honey syrup. I use blue agave nectar. I put that. I feel like it's a lot less shitty than just like simple syrup and whatnot. And then you can garnish it with either dill or tarragon. I did tarragon in mine, dill and terras, and a lemon twist. And I didn't do the lemon twist only because I didn't feel like cracking open a fresh lemon for that because I was I just juiced the rest of it. You should have given me the Terra gone. It's it's um, uh. licorice aroma. Oh, yeah. OK. Yeah. I was trying to be punny with my name. Yeah, you you would not be a fan. So that's the drink. And uh, Tara and I are going to sit here and drink our blood out of our chalices while uh, Yaley starts us off on Midnight Mass. Herbed blood. Yeah. All right. So real quick question. Is that blue agave sweetener? Is that um, expensive? No. I mean, I, we went to Costco, of course, got two 
giant squeeze containers of it, two for nine dollars. And it's shelf stable. Like you can just, you don't have to refrigerate it. You can just leave it right on your dry bar. Cause like simple syrup, if you make it homemade, which I always do because the ones you buy, they have bullshit preservatives. Even when you put it in the fridge, it'll start growing shit after about a month. Uh, I just cleaned it today and I saw there was a growth on like the, the one container we were using uh, under the cap. It was a little brown and that's just the growth. It makes perfect sense. Obviously, but it's just like honey. You can leave it yeah. on the counter just how honey, you leave honey I, out. I'm not sure if it lasts literally forever like honey, but it's not going to go bad in the time that you have it out and use yeah. it. So, yeah. I might change that up because, like you said, we, we notice growth after like like a, like a week or two. You'll get something funky. And it just so happens that we got those really big ones at Costco, but you can go to any um, grocery store, Publix, whatever, or whatever's up north, Giant Eagle. And, you know, we they, have a, they we have a Costco usually, membership. There you go. Yeah. yeah. I'd recommend I'll check it. that out next it, time I'm there. Yep. It also does, it's a perfect compliment. Well, agave, it's a perfect compliment to um, mezcal and tequila cocktails. Considering it's made from it. Consi- yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's the same perfect. plant. So it, it, all of it works together nicely. That will be a summer investment then, for sure. Mm-hmm. Actually, we'll probably dabble in that when we're in Costa Rica. Oh, yeah. So, Take us away, right. Ailey. We're going to. You guys are going to have to bear with me. I took pages and pages of notes. They're a little bit scatterbrained, but they are episode by episode. So, and I think as I went along, I was like writing down every little detail from the first episode. And then when I got to the seventh episode, I was just like main story stuff. You were like, I can't do this all the way or I'll yeah. be here for it, it would It would have taken me like two weeks to finish it if I had right. done it. I did the way I did the first episode. But anyway. Yep. Okay, welcome to Midnight Mass. This setting takes place, opening scene is uh, a car crash in a metropolitan area, which I believe is divulged to be Chicago. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, I think it is Chicago. I didn't write that down, actually. Um, Yeah, car crash, um, young woman through the windshield on the pavement, being attended to by uh, EMS, um, not looking good. Then there pans over to uh, probably mid thirties gentleman who's injured but okay. It's a drunk driving accident. He was drunk and fell asleep at the wheel and got in a car accident and killed this woman. Long story short, he goes to prison. And he's released, and then he returns home. Welcome to Crockett Island, um, where his hometown and his family resides. It is a small island with a population of 127 people. Um, Real small, tight-knit community. Obviously, everybody knows everyone. There's like one general store, uh, one church, one school with two teachers, um, it's a fishing community, obviously being on an island in the ocean and, um, it's a suffering, uh, suffering business as far as the fishing goes, which I'll get into the reasons of that later. Um, and the, our main character's name is Riley Flynn, and that is the man who was in a drunk driving accident and he is returning home after prison. So as he returns home, um, like I said, it's a really small knit community. Everybody knows everyone's business. So pretty much the whole island knows about his troubles with alcohol. 
He is on parole at this point and is forced to attend AA meetings, which he can only do so on the mainland. So he has to take a ferry, which there are only two ferries daily. One is called the Breeze and one is called the Bell. Um, so anytime he has to attend an AA meeting to fulfill his uh, parole regulations or what have you, uh, he has to go on there for several hours and do that. Um, so as we talked about, this is kind of like a very much a religious and spiritual based show with a really awesome twist in it. The church is heavily mentioned and pictured throughout the entire show. And at this point in the town, they have had pretty much the same Catholic priest. Now, are they referred to as reverends? Because I really want to pick your brain, Alex, as to Catholicism. Because I don't know a ton about it. You, you, so, I mean, I've definitely heard that before, but the the general term is priest, and then the like the the Hosbog priests, the the ones who have, uh, you know, been been a priest for a very long time. I'm not sure what all the different criteria are and everything, but the the upper like the step above a priest is being a monsignor, and then of course when you're referring to to him many times, you know, people just call him father. So I guess that's some of the okay. terminology. And and for clarification for, for everybody, um, I was uh, born Methodist, converted to Catholicism about, uh, I don't know, early 20s, sometime in my early 20s. Um, Tara was born and raised Catholic. And Kaylee, for yourself, context. Uh, I was raised more or less pro- Protestant um, mm-hmm. slash like evangelical. I attended an evangelical church pretty much through pretty much halfway through high school, I'd say I stopped going. Um, but raised in a heavily Protestant and my dad's super religious and my mother and my stepfather are both, uh, very religious. They're just not as pushy about it. Yeah. Um, but my are mom's they, still are they to also this Protestant? Day. Yes. Yeah. Both Protestant. Um, but my mom to this day still is heavily involved in her church. I think uh, my stepdad is actually a deacon for the church there. Oh, okay, yeah. And my mother is like the choir director, and she like sings music for the uh, worship team and stuff like that. Cool. Even to this day, that'll help a lot. I feel like as we get into the second half of the show. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, okay, so I'll try to slim this down because I can spend forever on this. Um, the church has had the same priest for decades. Um, so pretty much anybody who's on the island, whether they're from the previous generation, meaning the parents of Riley or Riley's generation, or maybe slightly younger, everybody knows this one priest whose name was, um, Monsignor John Pruitt to be the priest on Crockett Island. Um, the island pitched together a bunch of funds to send him. He's very elderly at this point and kind of having early stages of dementia. Um, so they sent him to the Holy Land, I believe, and just to go with a group and to experience that all. So he has been, M- not MIA, but just m- not attending church for the time being. Um, he is due to return. And there is one woman 
in the town. Her name is Beverly Keene, who's a very uh, avid churchgoer. Um, I guess, what, what's the cliche term for devout Catholic, I guess you would say. Yeah. <laughs> um, very tight with the Monsignor and pretty I, I much helps. zealous is a good yes. word for her because yeah. that yeah. has a definitely negative a zealot. connotation. <laughs> yeah. And as the show progresses, that definitely comes out more and more. <laughs> but um, throughout the show, you kind of realize that with the aging um, priest, more and more responsibility of the church is falling or by design going to Beverly Keene more so than the priest with his failing mental capacity. Um, so the priest is set to return. He doesn't show up. Uh, Beverly's concerned. She ends up finding that the priest has returned or who she thought was the priest, but ends up being a much younger man who has then told the town that because of Pruitt's failing mental state, he is recovering in the mainland from his trip in a hospital, uh, and he has been sent by him and the archdiocese. Is that the right term? Yep, yep. archdiocese, archdiocese. Um, yeah, uh, to fill in for the time being. And his name is Father Paul Hill. And he's a very young man. Um, and right off the bat, uh, he's, I won't say he's confrontational, but he's extremely passionate about like not many people are attending the church at this point. Um, probably has to do with um, the failing mental state of the priest at that time, as well as we'll get into the island fishing community and everything that it is has suffered because of an oil spill that occurred three years prior to the start of the series. So it pretty much wiped out the fishing game. Um, and a lot of people were hurting financially because of that. Obviously that's their livelihood. And there was, you know, that takes years and years for an ecosystem to recoup after that. So um, I think people are selling off their houses or not even putting houses on the market and just leaving at this point. And that's why the population is 127. You know, it's not a, it's, it's not a super, super small island. It's enough to fit, you know, a community, but it's just been dwindling ever since that oil spill. So this young priest is shown dragging in. The only thing that he brings back with him into this house is this large, large trunk. And he leaves this trunk in his home and you can hear noises coming from it, but it's never really opened. You don't really know what it is, but that's all he brings home. Um, he then takes up the church, continues to try and get more people to attend regularly. I believe they have daily mass. Is that a thing at all Catholic yep. churches? Daily yep. mass? Okay. Yep. Um, so he's trying to get people not only to attend on Sundays or, you know, holidays, but try to consistently attend every single day. Um, he's kind of provocative about it at times, but also encouraging, kind of giving a new approach to it, probably different than the older priest that was there. Um, Riley returns with his family. He has a mother and father and a younger brother. His younger brother is probably 
in his uh, probably like mid-teens, I'd say like 16, 17 years old, getting into teen mischief and stuff. So Riley's just adjusting to being back home where he intentionally left the island because he kind of thought it wasn't for him and went to the big city to try and make a name for himself but got in trouble. Um, so he's just adjusting to being back home with his parents and everything in a small community. And something that comforts him, I think, a little bit in doing so is his childhood friend, Aaron Green, who is a woman, um, has also returned back, who also ran away at like 17 and went and did her life. They haven't seen each other since they both left. She is also back on the island. And so he kind of has a familiar face there to kind of help him along they kind of reacquaint with each other slowly, learning about what they have been doing since they left the island and so on and so forth. Um, so with all of that going on, um, there starts to be some mysterious activity going on on the island that isn't fully explained. Um, there's a giant storm coming in the first episode that... There's a one sheriff who is uh, a really interesting character. His name is Sheriff Hassan. Loved him. Um, yeah, he was one of my favorite characters Sharif, in the show. As yeah, the one Sharif. guy calls him. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's kind of new to the town. Um, and he and his son have moved there. And they are both of Muslim faith or Islamic faith. Um, so they're kind of... Not outcasts, but, you know, that weird pressure of just being different from everybody else is kind of there. Um, so it's his first major storm on the island that they're preparing for. And they have their small town meeting about uh, what they're going to do to prepare for the storm. They have their own fuel stations they need to shut down. The only way on or off the island is by boat because they're surrounded by 30 miles of water in every direction. So they have to make sure their boats are safe, their fuel is safe, their power is probably going to go out. Um, they're just prepping to see what happens in this storm. And Beverly insists that, you know, the, the place, the shelter where everybody gathers for all the storms is going to be this new rec center that was recently built um, as part of the church. And... It is later divulged that this rec center was built from money that was given to the church. And this money came from, whenever the oil spill happened, um, this money came from settlements from the petroleum company that had the spill. So the citizens of Pro Crockett Island were given these settlements and Bev Keem was going around telling all the townspeople to take all this money um, you know, it's a gift from God. These settlements are a gift from God. And, you know, why not give some of that back to the church Convenient. while you're at it? Because it's, um, you know, it's a gift from God. So why not give some of it back? So basically she built this rec center, uh, from the settlements from the citizens. And that is the official, uh, shelter for the island. So during a storm, um, Riley and his family are, you know, batting down the hatches, putting boards up on the windows and so on and so forth. The storm finally hits 
And Riley looks out the window in the middle of the storm, and they're right on the beach, and he sees what he believes to be the older Monsignor Pruitt, John Pruitt, the priest that is supposed to be resting on the island, or sorry, the mainland. And he then, he, he has this iconic uh, long like duster coat and a fedora that he was just known to be wearing. And that's exactly what he saw out on the beach in the storm. So he goes out to chase after him and that suspect then just bolts on the beach and he loses him. Uh, the next morning they wake up, storm has passed, and this is where some of the weird stuff starts happening. All of these stray cats kind of tend to make their way toward this area of the island called the Uppards, which is, I think, more of like a swampy area. Um, it's it it's not like. in, yeah, it's not like really inhabited, but uh, it sounds like a place where, you know, teenagers go to like, you know, drink or hook up or whatever. It's just kind of the teenage mischief area. But all these stray cats, yeah, (laughs) all these stray cats tend to go up there. There's like hundreds of them. And occasionally whenever it storms and the water rises, some of these dead cats wash up on the beach where Riley Flynn's house is. So they're kind of used to seeing this. Well, after this storm, it is not only above average, but there are hundreds and hundreds of these cats that wash up onto the beach. And... The sheriff's investigating pretty much the whole town's trying to figure out what happened at this point. And the mayor, um, whose name is Wade Scarborough, who has a wife, um, Dolly, and a daughter, Lisa. Um, you know, the whole town's kind of investigating this with the sheriff to try and figure out what happened. And the sheriff being new, the townsfolk are kind of telling him, you know, strange stuff like this has happened before with the oil spill being number one and I think they said like a pod of dolphins at some point, you know, washed up and everything like that. Just strange things overall that kind of went unexplained. Um, So they're kind of chalking it up to that where the new sheriff is a little bit alarmed, thinking there's some kind of contagion or something like that going around. Episode two, with the cats washing up onto the shore, there's a, a big town gathering going on where this new priest is going to be and pretty much everyone's going to be there they call it um potluck mm-hmm. i think um it's basically just like a town festival and everything and everybody goes there's a town drunk by the name of joe cully who everybody knows is the town drunk um has made some mistakes in his past um he's actually the reason that the mayor's daughter uh, Lisa Scarborough is in a wheelchair, a drunken firearm accident where she was shot by accident by drunk Joe Cully and paralyzed from the waist down in a wheelchair. Um, Beverly Keene doesn't seem to be too fond of Joe Cully, nor do most of the people in the town. Uh, his dog, uh, Pike, was with him, pretty much his best friend and only friend, um, this dog is poisoned or presumably poisoned at this gathering where the dog coughs up some not so pleasant things and dies. Um, there's kind of an investigation launched about that. Um, and during this time, this new priest comes to Riley because he's been given uh, information from the older priest about just, you know, the citizens of the town 
where everybody's faith is, so-and-so. So he approaches Riley with his struggles. To avoid going to the mainland, he suggests opening an AA charter on the island because he's able to do so. So they start doing that, um, just having talks about that. And this is more where the settlement money from the oil spill and Bev Keen, um, you know, a lot of people suspect that she was kind of just taking the money for herself. And because there was so much of it, she ended up having to do something with it. And that's why the rec center was built. Um, we'll move on to episode three. I cut, this is really where things start getting to fruition, uh, within the show. Um, this episode starts out with the new, uh, priest in his own confessional booth confessing to no one but God. And I don't know, how does that work, Alex? Do you know if priests actually do that? Actually, that's, um, I'm embarrassingly unprepared for that question. I'm pretty sure that they would confess to each other. Yeah. Because that's the whole okay. basis of confession is that you, they, that's one of the big differences between uh, Protestantism and Catholicism is that you do need that medium. But, um, that's something I, I want to dive into. Yeah, yeah, totally. But it's, it's really, it's really interesting because they're um, they set this episode up such that it's like yes, he's he's doing a confession to God in private, but it's really giving the audience clarity into some things. Yes. So this confession um, basically is the story in of the older priest, uh, Father Pruitt, who went to the Holy Land. And the audience then learns that this younger priest who has come to the town is the same as the same guy as the old priest. This is Father Pruitt taken back 50 years. Um, he is the same man. And he then tells the story of, in his confession, of how this was able to come to fruition. In his mental failed state, he wanders around and it's uh, the road to Damascus. He's caught in a desert storm, um, you know, confused and everything. Comes across this cave area, goes within the cave for shelter because that's the only thing available. And whilst in the cave, he encounters a creature of some sort, some sort. and this creature then attacks him. Uh, as a vampire would attack somebody and sucks his blood. And after the uh, creature is pretty much done with him, the father is sitting there giving the Lord's prayer and the angel just kind of looks at him and then proceeds to feed him his own blood, cuts his wrist and lets the father suck on his own blood. The next morning the father wakes up and he is restored back to his younger self what is considered to be his prime self um, as God intended him to be. And he then decides at that point that he is going to bring what he deems this creature to be is an angel from God. He then decides he's going to bring this angel back to the island for the people who need it most to share this angel's miracles. This is what was in the trunk that the younger priest was shown bringing in. Uh, this creature has now been released onto the island, and the only person at this point that's aware of it is the priest himself. Throughout this episode, 
Um, this younger priest starts exhibiting some, what appears to just be like illness, which we can talk about that later. There's some, what I would consider to be some plot holes in this. I don't know if you guys were privy to any of that, but I had a lot of questions on some of these things. So Riley then has his first AA meeting with the priest that he knows as Father Paul, who is actually Father Pruitt, but again, only the audience knows that at this point. Um, he goes on to explain because Riley is no longer religious at this point in his life and he's having his AA meetings alone with a priest. Um, I believe alcohol, Alcoholics Anonymous is religious based, like the 12 step program. And specifically is, Christian. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I didn't know that until recently. Um, you know, obviously Kate, it works in mental health and stuff like that and does, drug rehabilitation, things like that for, um, the county here. Um, so she knows a lot about that, but I wasn't aware of that AA was religiously based. Um, Riley goes on to tell since he's moved away of, from religion that he is more of a, um, rational approach to it, which is, um, he calls it rational recovery rather than the typical 12-step program where they call it the um, the AV, ad- addictive voice. Addictive, addictive voice. voice. Hey, and by the way, Yaley, um, I said Christian. I, I did do a quick Google because I was curious myself. I think technically it says um, they're, they're officially like non-denominational, but then obviously okay. you might turn to a spiritual leader and in that particular case, if you were a Christian, then the higher power that they're referring to in, your, in that case would be God, you know, for example. Okay. But continue. I just wanted to Makes get some sense. clarification. So Riley has this more practical approach or what I would deem to be more practical. Probably if I found myself in that situation, I would be more on the side of Riley. Um, but just a, a more rational approach to, you know, addictive personality recognizing it and knowing how to deal with it once it once you deem that it's you know active um so obviously father pruitt or father paul in riley's eyes is pushing the religious aspect on him at this point but um it's good that he is you know started this chapter for him so he doesn't have to go to the mainland there's a big um part of this with the Sheriff being Muslim, him and his son, and obviously pretty much the entire island being Christian. Um, You know, there's definitely some tension going on there. During this time that the priest has, this younger priest has come back, um, some spectacular things start happening on the island. Um, People's physical ailments slowly start dissipating. Um, People who needed reading glasses no longer need reading glasses. Um... You know, people who have bad backs are all of a sudden alleviated of their pain and can do the things that they weren't able to do for years. Um, more significantly, the uh, young teenage girl, Lisa Scarborough, who was in a wheelchair is and is one of the very few people who are devout Catholic, attend Mass every single day. Um Attendance of mass starts slowly increasing as well, but during one of these, um, one of the daily masses, um, 
the father is giving out communion and essentially beckons Lisa to not only take communion, but to stand up out of her wheelchair, which she's not supposed to be able to do, to take communion. And he actually, I found it kind of funny because, you know, she tries to wheel her chair forward because he's standing away from her with the, mm-hmm. um, I don't know, what do you call that, Alex? The the bread. Uh, the Eucharist. Either one. Okay. The Eucharist. Eucharist host. Gotcha. Um, See. Yeah, she tries to wheel her chair towards him, and he's like, no. And he runs up the stairs away from her. (laughs) Um, This eventually prompts her to stand, and she has somehow been able to stand and walk and go up the steps to take this. And it is deemed as a miracle within the town. So obviously with this miracle happening, uh, church attendance is steadily increasing at this point. Uh, Moving on to episode four. Erin Green, the woman that Riley grew up with, she returned to the island and she is pregnant. There's no guy to be seen around her or anything like that. She's by herself and she is pregnant. She's going to the town doctor, uh, Sarah Gunning, who is taking overseeing all of her medical needs as far as the pregnancies involved. You know, she is a devout Catholic as well and Again, one of the few that attended Mass on a daily uh, basis, taking uh, communion uh, consistently. So these miracles start occurring. And in Aaron's case, uh, one day she is in for an ultrasound and mysteriously her baby is gone. It's uh, completely disappeared. And, you know, the doctors obviously being a doctor saying, you know, Obviously, you must have had a miscarriage, and you know at this point it would have been noticeable, but um, maybe you blocked it out. So there's another mysterious thing happening on the island, but kind of in a negative way, not so much of a miracle way. Um, the doctor's mother is quite elderly and is pretty much in the later stages of losing her mental health uh, with dementia or Alzheimer's, what have you. Um, in her circumstance, she starts kind of making a 180 where, you know, first her mind is starting to recover and she's able to hold conversations and remember who people are. And then she's able to get up out of her hospital bed and then out of the wheelchair and walking around, eventually basically reversing all of the... Um, all the effects that she's that age has brought upon her. This has been divulged at this point as the priest drank the blood from the creature or angel. It is always referred to as the angel. Um, that the word vampire, I don't think, is ever mentioned in the entire show, but it's pretty much assumed that this creature is a vampire. Um, but what has been happening as Father Prude drank the blood to basically go from you know eighty some years old to twenty some years old, um, he has been putting the blood of this angel in the wine for the communion, and so all the people as attendance steadily increases, more people start getting the positive or negative effects of this creature's blood that is now mixed in with the wine. So 
that is kind of the father's plan all along is to bring this miracle to the town. So people all over are just benefiting from this, most of them more so. In Aaron's case, she obviously lost her baby and that's terrible. With her suffering, Aaron and Riley kind of have a talk about their past and everything, telling her, telling Riley about basically how the baby saved her life um, to get away from her ex-husband at the time, um, who was reminiscent of Aaron's mother, who was probably uh, emotionally abusive, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so she basically ran away. That's why she came back to the island with while pregnant and no one to support her. As the story goes on, I, I mentioned how Father Pruitt or Paul uh, has shown like symptoms of becoming just like randomly ill. And there's no real rhyme or reason for it. Um, there's subtle hints of the dog that was poisoned. There's a uh, rat poison that they used to use when the oil spill, they had a rat problem. Bev Keen is pretty much heading up the department of that and is in charge of the storage of all that. So the symptoms that he is showing are very similar to something of a poisoning. Um, he eventually walks into his house with several of the um, more prominent attendees of the church and just dies the same way the dog did. Just very violent, vomiting blood and everything like that. He just dies. Um, about, I don't know, five, ten minutes later, he is back up again, back to life, resurrected as if Jesus Christ. Um, you know, all the townspeople that were there are pretty freaked out by this event. And there is a photo in his house of, which was the priests before him, um, which is his younger self. There's a photo there of his younger self, which obviously looks exactly like him in real time. And the people who are in the house start recognizing this. Um, so slowly more and more people will start to become aware of who this younger priest actually is. They start to realize that, you know, this is the same priest that's been with us all the time. He is, you know, a byproduct of a miracle. He explains that an angel, he encountered an angel on his travels, and this is how this was possible. So he starts getting a small little inside circle of people that are aware of this. Um, and as he started this new AA chapter, they have now convinced Joe Cully, the town drunk, to start attending. Um, he comes and seeks his help on a particularly tough day for him, struggling with the alcohol and this was quite a comical scene for me where father Prude at this point is experiencing since his revival he's now basically full vampire at this point since he's died and been resurrected he is now sensitive to light he can't go out in the sunlight he is now getting cravings for human blood or blood in general um, debilitating pain, which causes them to like, you know, crawl into the fetal position unless they feed upon blood. Joe Cully stumbles in for seeking the help of the priest and just kind of a wrong place at a wrong time. Uh, father's really hungry for blood at this point and gives him a hug and just saying that he's proud of him for, you know, abstaining from alcohol on a tough day. 
and smells him and refuses to let him go. And it's kind of a, I, I have written down funny, in quotes, funny <laughs> hug. Um, refuses cringy, to let him go. Awkward. Yeah. Um, trying to escape the clutches of the priest, he then suddenly lets go. He falls backwards. His head is cracked open. He's now like hemorrhaging on the floor. And you then cut to another scene where Father Pruitt is now sucking the blood out of his bleeding wound on his head. Uh, needless horrifying. to say, Joe Cully. It was yeah, rough because I loved it. I loved Joe Cully. I thought, like, I loved his story and his redemption and everything. Oh, he was fantastic. Um, by the way, I never even mentioned this. Is this this show is written by uh, a guy named um, Mike, Mike Flanagan. Flanagan. Mm -hmm. He has done The Haunting on Hill House and The Haunting of Blind Manor. Um, Hill House was really good. I was a big fan of that. I have not watched Blind Manor yet. Have you guys? No, we watched the one of his movies, Hush. Which I was going to bring oh, up. Oh, Hush was good. Yeah, yep. yeah, and I believe uh, the girl who plays Aaron Green was in is in that film as well. And Bev Keen and Bev is and the next the mayor. And, yeah, and the mayor. The mayor's in it as which, well. Which, by the way, wow. I, I blew everybody away when we were watching it in here because when the mayor was on screen, he looked familiar to me, and I was like, "Holy shit!" I was like, "That's Sam Anders from Battlestar Galactica reimagining." Oh um, wow! But but you know, like fifteen years older. It's crazy. Yeah. It was like the makeup they used because I didn't recognize him. And then it's as the show age. goes on, like you talk about the benefits and stuff. I was like, oh, my God, I can I can see it. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, well, kind of Quentin Tarantino-esque, Mike Flanagan is, I guess, big fan of keeping like a continual cast going in all his shows. He uses a lot of the same actors and actresses. Um, so um, he basically is a pretty interesting writer. Uh, obviously this show had a huge religious side to it and it's kind of difficult to tell which way he's going, but we can get into that later. So Joe Coley is dead at this point. Um, I believe that ends episode four. Bev Keen does discover that Joe Coley has been killed. Um, and she is there to help the priest kind of get out of this pickle that he's in. Um, again, you know, all of this time, Bev is just kind of going on what I guess I would chuck up to, like, blind faith. You know, all these miracles are happening. It must be from God. Like, you know, even though some of these things are terrible, um, you know, this, is, this has to be God's will. And she is there to, I think, support her own ambitions, but at the same time trying to help the church. Um, but later on, I think it's kind of divulged that she kind of has her own and personal ambitions as well. Anyway, she gets the priest out of this situation. They get rid of the body with the inner circle. They dump the body in the ocean. And now evening masses, hence the title Midnight Mass, have to be a thing because the priest is now can't go out in the light or he'll burst into flames as a vampire <laughs> does. More people start seeing, you know, improvements as people keep taking communion, um, the doctor's mother, whose name is Millie, keeps not only you know recovering mentally, but starts you know reverse aging, getting back to her peak self. Is now wanting to attend mass again, which she hasn't done in years. Um, the townspeople are now aware of that. The last AA meeting, which I have written down, is between Pruitt and Riley alone. 
Joe Cully, obviously being dead, is not attending. Uh, I thought this was a pretty pivotal moment. Um, Some good discussion was had there. Riley basically is concerned for Joe Cully because he doesn't want him to fall off the wagon. And Pruitt, being the one that killed him, uh, has to make up a lie. And just prior to that, Joe and Riley have been talking about his sister who has passed away. And then Father Pruitt tells Riley that, oh, Joe's not here because he's, you know, off on the mainland with his sister. So Riley kind of keeps it to himself, but he now knows that the priest has lied to him, probably, um, you know, cementing his opinions uh, about religion overall and doesn't trust it. Um, he then goes back when he's supposed to meet Aaron Green. He's very upset by this lie that the priest told him, so he plans to go and confront him. Uh, As he returns to the rec center, which is where they were holding the AA meetings, he not only finds Father Pruitt there still, but he then sees the creature, the first human to see the creature on the island, or the angel. The angel was summoned there by Father Pruitt to refill the sacrament. Uh, basically, he needed more blood for himself and for the people of the town to continue the work that they're doing. Riley bursts in with both the angel and Pruitt there. The angel sees him, and as you can expect, that doesn't go well for Riley. He is attacked, and that ends the episode. Episode 5 starts with... Which, by the way, f- for my money, that was probably the the scariest and like holy shit moment that happened so fast yeah i like jumped yeah. back because it, 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 it felt like, like it was it coming flew at me. across the screen or it, it flew across the rec hall to him and I, if i recall it came at you yes right you're in Riley's it, like as the viewer yeah. it came to the screen the, that shit was yeah the camera angle yeah it was sweet i loved it yeah very abrupt and like the coat goes flying off the hat goes flying off and everything yeah uh, and it's yeah, terrifying, by the way. Yeah, the scene it's itself, terrifying like, looking. as he's just like ripping into Riley's neck, drinking his blood, it's pretty gruesome. And Father Pruitt just goes slowly behind him and closes the door. Yeah. Not yeah. a big deal. Can't let anybody see this. <laughs> yeah. Tara, pour me some more blood, please. We've moved on to wine for the listeners. Oh, nice. on the theme of red yeah. beverages and, fittingly, Blood at church, or yeah. no blood? Pour, God, wine me, at church. Pour me some more blood of Christ, please. <laughs> Sounds like I'm pissing. <laughs> that'd Here, be, that'd be real good. Here's a real big pour for you. I Thanks. saw you going through it. I still All prefer right, Ry- Riley's oh, yeah. attack was uh, more. I guess afterwards, more stomachable to watch than poor. Uh, Joe, Joe Colley, yeah. because Joe Colley, not only did he get killed, and I feel bad for him. He didn't get turned, but um, Pruitt sucking the blood off the floor out of boards. his head. It was a lot, and then sucking on his head the next. Yeah, scene, that's I was like, the oh scene that really God. like freaked me out. Like at yeah. first, he's just like sipping it off the floor, and then it like just shows a scene of the out of the outside the house, and then it goes right back into where they're at, and he's just sucking on his head, yeah, and like it was very very yeah, coconut. it's like a yeah. like a teat like a baby yep. on a teat <laughs> oh god i say water out of a coconut you say a baby on a teat I'm, i have been yep. known to take it to the next level and yeah. then some 
Oh yeah. Blood Teat. That's the name of my next band. Oh yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay, so episode five, Riley is missing, obviously. Aaron, he was supposed to see Aaron that night. He never arrived. Uh, Aaron starts questioning, you know, his family's wondering if they have seen him. His parents think that he's off on a binger. Um, we then cut to the Good Friday scene, um, the sermon that um, Father Pruitt gives to the congregation. Now, again, most of the congregation doesn't know that this is Pruitt at this point. Only a select few people do, like Beverly. Um, there's a guy named Sturge, which is basically like a muscle guy for them. And looks he just like all... Joe Colley, which confused yes. me for a little while. Yeah, he does. Um, and the mayor and his wife, um, those are pretty much the only people that know at this point that he is Father Pruitt. So during this uh, sermon... Um, he basically goes on to say, basically, you know, Good Friday is the crucifixion. Um, it's, you know, it's a, it's a gruesome story, a story of suffering, but, you know, it is a good story because of where it's headed Easter Sunday with the resurrection. Um, he talks about, um, being part of God's army um, he relates it to the U S military, like the be all you can be. Um, but you know, also makes the claim that, you know, God doesn't want you to fight for this country because God doesn't have a country. God doesn't have any borders. There's only one God for the entire world. Um, he kind of goes into this intriguing, I would call it an interpretation about, um, you know, the war basically between good and evil, um, you know, God and the devil, um, where, how do we know where, you know, what's the status of this battle? How do you know? You can't talk to anybody about it and everything. Uh, he goes into your moral compass, which is, you know, given from God, you know, everybody has somewhat of a moral compass. Most of us do, um, that's given from God, which I also agree with. Um, but he goes in to say, like, if as God' will changes, his will is perfect, but it changes, so our morality changes. So basically, you know, if they feel that God is telling you to do something terrible, it's still God's will and it's perfect, so your morality will change. You will not have guilt about doing things that would be deemed bad or sinful, uh, based on their interpretation of God's will. So I found that pretty interesting. Um, we can talk about that later, but this is, uh, the first mass that Millie, the doctor's elderly mother, who's been reverted back to a younger age. Uh, this is the first mass that she's able to publicly attend. Uh, she's sitting there listening to this priest divulge. She knows him as Pruitt because she grew up with him. So, he doesn't have to tell her who he is because she grew up with him. She knows what he looks like as his younger self. And while listening to this, she storms out of the church after the sermon and says, that is not my church. That is not the man I knew. I don't want, you know, I'm not going there anymore. And I don't want my daughter going there anymore. 
she's quite upset by the message that he was delivering about the moral compass and God's army and so on and so forth. And I, I come, I come not in peace, but with a sword that yeah, very profound piece of scripture, especially in that context for sure. Yeah. Fast forward a little bit. Riley then knocks on Aaron's window. She's pissed. Where the hell were you? You know, what was going on? He asks her without really explaining where he was to, take a boat ride with him, just a little rowboat out into the ocean, which is something they did as teenagers before Aaron ran away. And he asks her to listen to a story that, you know, he says, you know, you're not going to believe this, but I just need you to listen to this. He goes on to tell the story of, you know, confronting the father about his lie about Joe Cully, how he was attacked, how he was brought back. Uh, to life, and now he is a vampire. Um, I guess there was one thing that I did miss. Uh, Riley, throughout the show, has this recurring dream um, where he is in the middle of the ocean on a boat by himself in the middle of the dark, just sitting there waiting for the sun to rise, and the sun never rises. He always wakes up before the sun rises. Now he is actually physically out there with Aaron, telling her this story in the middle of the dark. He tells her this story. She says, yes, that's very difficult to believe. Like She's trying to figure out what exactly it is that he's trying to convey to her. He, she wonders why, like, you brought me out here for what? To scare me? Like, what are you trying to do here? And he then divulges, like, I brought you out here where like none of us had anywhere to go, so I didn't have anywhere to go. Uh, pretty much, Riley's disgusted with, you know, the the entire ideology that the priest has about what has happened, what's happening to the town people, what happened to him. Uh, basically, the lifestyle of a vampire doesn't want to be any part of it. Just not feeling and, it. No, <laughs> he is not feeling that. So. Uh, they wait until the sun rises and poor Aaron has to sit there while poor Riley bursts in the flames and dies. Harrowing scene. That, that the was most dramatic scene. suicide. Like the premeditated, I'm going to get on this boat. And, and that was watch. the death knell of him getting on that boat. And then he's yeah. like, all right, and, I'm out here. And huge credit to, the, uh, to Aaron, the actor who plays Aaron because her her reaction is what freaks me out. It's not... Seeing Riley turn to dust, it's it's like putting myself in her shoes, and she does such an amazing job of expressing her terror at what she's seeing and and utter disbelief. I mean, imagine seeing that. It's yeah. just it's really well done. And then doesn't it cut to black like right then? Yeah, that that in is the middle the of her of screaming. Five. To add to that, to I think the reason why she screamed as well, um, and I don't know if you picked up on this when you watched Kaylee. Um, wasn't it mentioned that they were like childhood hookup sweetheart type friend? It's imp- it's with implied. benefit thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they have a little bit of like a intensified romantic like. Yeah, he's not just a stranger. Tie to each other. Yeah, they're not just friends that grew up together in high school and like, oh yeah, like we shot the shit and kicked the can down the road. Like they were fi- like physically implied, physically intimate, which comes with a lot of other things with it. So I think her reaction was so justified and potentially like sort of rekindling even and rekindling. before you know the events that happen to Riley he spends the night at her house and you can kind of get that sense that they are reacquainting with one another like maybe 
you know, our lives have been shit and we ended up back where we came from, but maybe we can make it through this together, you know, from here on out. That's kind of implied that that's where the direction is going for those two. And even before, you know, as the sun's coming up, Riley says to Aaron, you know, I, I absolutely love you. Like you were my love of my life in some form or another, like I loved you. And she also returns that sentiment to him. And what we were talking about, about just the, the terror and everything of witnessing Riley burst into flames right in front of her. I, I found that to be uh, super interesting because, you know, he, he prefaces the whole thing by saying, you know, I'm going to tell you a story and you're not going to believe it. And the only way she probably was going to believe it is if she saw that. Yeah. And that's how they episode. That's ends, how he chose so. to use his life. Like, yeah, was to first of all, he was done. And second, like he's he thought this she'll now know everything I just said is true. And she has information to to deal with this and fix this. Yeah. So Riley's demise is essentially, uh, you know, beat for beat this same as his reoccurring dream. He's out on a boat. The last dream that he has of this reoccurring dream, he says, this one was a little bit different because you were with me. And um, I thought this part was really cool. Like right as the sun comes up, the sun flashes on Riley's face and it doesn't show him burst into flames immediately. It, um, you know, has really soft um, melodic music playing and the sun shines on his face and he looks up where Aaron was sitting in the boat. And instead of Aaron being there, um, he now sees the young girl that he killed in the DUI accident. And she smiles at him. She's no longer bloody and glass in the face. She's at her peak self. She smiles at him, stands up, takes his hand, and they float away. Um, so I thought that was pretty cool how they made that kind of all full circle with that. Um, so on episode six, Riley is dead. <laughs> That's what it says. Yep. <laughs> yep. Two episodes uh, left and you're like, oh, the the main, not so main, but certainly a top three character is Toast. Yeah. So Ash. Riley's gone. Aaron goes back to shore. Aaron immediately goes to the doctor, um, who is, you know, not religious. Her mother was, but she is not. She's a doctor, you know, science over versus religion. Um, she immediately goes to the doctor and tells the doctor, Sarah, about her experience. Like, this is a fucking crazy story. You're never going to believe this. I sound crazy now that it's coming out of my mouth. And Sarah actually kind of relates to her she's like yeah you know what like in any other circumstances you'd be absolutely crazy but sarah herself as a doctor since aaron lost the baby and her mother's making this miraculous unprecedented recovery has been taking blood samples of both aaron and her mother at one point earlier in the series she witnesses one of these blood vials boiling in the sun and eventually just completely drying up cracking the vial and she's tested this over and over again, and both Aaron's blood and her mother's blood boils in the sun. So she finds it now a little bit more believable that, hmm, maybe somebody could burst into flames if their entire mm -hmm. blood was like this. Um, 
vibes of Let's the see. thing very much. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and I have more. Th- uh, I have more things I want to talk about with that, but I want to get through the. Yeah, yeah. The the. Yeah, the, I'm just going to get through the rest synopsis. of it, and then we can really yeah. dive in. I know oh, yeah, we're I'm probably what... everything in. <laughs> <laughs> um, she tell Sarah the doctor tells Aaron um a story about a very old doctor, um who is basically like shunned from the medical community for recommending hand washing. We can get into this later, but I thought that was a very interesting point. Um, Pruitt can sense somehow that Riley has basically offed himself. Uh, He's no longer with them and Pruitt, although he didn't see it happen, can kind of sense that he's no longer with them. So maybe he's a Jedi vampire. I don't know. (laughs) Um, Let's see. So between Sarah, her mother, Millie, and Aaron, they're trying to figure out like what the hell's going on with the boiling blood and Riley bursting into flames. And, you know, her the doctor's theory is if she took the little girl, Lisa Scarborough, who was paralyzed blood, she bets that, you know, if I had her blood, it would do the same thing that yours is doing. Um, Sarah then goes to the sheriff to tell him, basically, you know, something's going on with the church. You need to investigate it. Um, he's like, there's no fucking way I'm doing that uh, because I'm a Muslim and you want me to investigate a Christian church. I got out. He his he goes into a story about his past working with the NYPD right after 11. Yes, very moving. Speech. And I'm I'm sure some that probably happened to some people. Oh, oh I'm sure it did. Doubt. Yep. Yeah. I don't I don't put it past. We can dive into that too. Um, he tells her, like, there's no way I'm going to be doing that. Um, so basically now that this inner circle knows who Pruitt really is, and they now know he's a vampire, and they know what this blood of this angel is doing for people, they basically come up with a plan to, for lack of a better term, like indoctrinate um, everybody to become just like Pruitt as a vampire to live forever, be brought back to your peak self and have, you know, everything that you could possibly want. And this is all again, under the pretenses and belief that this is all from God. This is not some just like random occurrence. This is all God's will. Like these people are deserving of this because this is the way God wants it to be. And they're a blessed town. Yeah. And, and um, they're not pitching it as vampirism. They're pitching it as being resurrected. Like, yeah, yeah like in a, a, in a new, second coming moment. Yeah, it's like the new wave that God wants. Like, God wanted the angel, in quotes, to be discovered. The angel has a gift, and mm-hmm. God's will is that this angel is going to give this gift to yep. humanity. Yeah. So, you talk about zealotry. Well, basically, these zealots following Pruitt um, have come up with this plan. They're going to disable all the boats on the island. They're going to cut the electricity to the island and they're going to cut the cell tower, which basically leaves them with no way of contacting the outside. They're going to trap everybody there, but pretty much everybody on the island is going to church anyway. And it is now, uh, Easter vigil. So the midnight, I guess that's Saturday at midnight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, great. Okay. T- typically. Um, yeah. Right. Well, I mean, it, Easter it, vigil mass is usually held 
on a Saturday night it would, before it Easter Sunday. It certainly doesn't start at midnight because a vigil mass usually goes no, two to three I mean. hours. Yeah, but it's, it's a night it's, mass on sun, Saturday night. Before it's late Easter night Sunday. Saturday. Okay, so basically the whole island's going to be there anyway. Maybe a select few won't be, but um, the entire population's going to be there. So they kill all the electricity, but disable the boats, cut the cell tower. Um, so another aspect of this show is the sheriff Hassan has a son. Uh, they're both Muslim or at least his son is raised Muslim. Uh, with all these miracles and crazy things going around the island with kids his age and everything, he uh, starts to show an interest in Christianity, which is sort of upsetting his father being a Muslim. Um, but he's attended a few masses because his father, you know, is somewhat practical about it and goes in to tell that, you know, the religious, um, I guess, preferences of Islam is, you know, they always seek people to obtain knowledge. They won't discourage that. So if you need to explore other religions and everything, he explains that that's something that they encourage. Um, so he lets his son do that. Uh, his son convinces him to come to Easter Vigil himself. During Easter Vigil, after they've cut all the power and everything, uh, Pruitt then reveals himself and tells his story to the entire congregation, so more or less the entire town, and reveals himself to be the Pruitt of old, uh, revived, brought back to his younger self, um, and tells the story of the angel. Um you know, just kind of disgusted with what everything that the priest is saying. Just it's kind of dark. Um, Sheriff Hassan tries to take his son and take him out. He turns around to go to the exit of the church, and standing there is the angel, who's a very, very scary looking thing. Yes, um, and he's in the robes. He's yeah, in the, he's the, in the priest the... robes, so it's even extra freaky. Yeah, yeah, it's very, very creepy. He's like super, super tall. He's like eight he's, feet tall. When or he something. springs his spreads his wings, oof. Yeah. That's some his, that's his some evil looking wings. shit. Yeah. So the angel then walks forward um up to the altar. Yeah. Yep. I, I don't know religious terminology. Yeah. Um and presents himself to the congregation as well. Um so in order basically Pruitt uh deems this as like a test of faith from God to obtain the life, the everlasting life and being reverted back to your best self and everything. You must like Jesus die and leave your earthly body behind to obtain this new version of yourself. So again, this rat poison that Bev Keen seems to be so fond of comes into play. Um, and a bunch of people take this poison and kill themselves. It reminded me of uh, Jonestown. <laughs> Jim Jim Jones and drinking the Kool-Aid and all that good yeah. stuff. It's a harrowing scene. Oh, yeah, uh, when you look at it and you see that there are like five-year-old children in the congregation yeah. and they're included. And they're watching in the, their the mayhem die and vice versa. Yeah, that, that whole scene was, um, oh, that was a lot. It's actually the reason I, I wanted to watch the show because... James was watching it in his room and I heard all this crazy screaming and shit coming out of his room. And I was like, Oh, I want to watch what he's watching. And <laughs> whenever he told me it was midnight mass and he said it was the second to last episode, I was like, 
I, at first I, I misunderstood him. I thought it was like American Horror Story. Well, no, no, it is in the sense that it's self-contained. I, I thought the episodes were self-contained. And I just wanted oh, okay. to watch that one. And he was like, no, it's a whole thing. And I was like, well, seven hours, whatever. I'll, I'll dive in. But this was hearing this episode and James's response and him saying how messed up it was. That's why I watched this show, believe it or not. Yeah. Uh, I had a lot of thoughts about that. Like, Tara, you mentioned like the young kids and everything. So like something that I look back on my own personal past with religion and stuff, and I, I'll keep this short, but basically like a young kid wants to make his parents happy or her parents happy. So when they're not capable of like understanding these things fully, they'll pretty much just go along with whatever the parents are doing to do it. And these poor innocent kids are just, you know, ingesting poison and dying and then becoming yep. raving, raging little vampire Undead vampires. That, that's a whole yeah. thing. Yep. I, I want to get it. Yeah. I want to get in. One last yeah. episode. So, yep. all right, we'll get through these last two episodes. So basically chaos ensues. All these people die. And, um, they all end up coming back like five, 10 minutes later, they come back to life and now they're all bloodthirsty vampires and they're all locked in this church. And there's maybe a handful of people that didn't do it because meanwhile, Aaron Green, Sarah Gunning and her mother decided to like actually attend this mass to really see what was going on because they had no proof of anything and they're trying to convince people not to take it. A handful of people don't. Um, so now all these hungry vampires are in there, locked in there with a few unfortunate human beings. And chaos ensues, and a bunch of killing starts happening. And it's a bloodbath. There's blood all over the church walls. Um, Millie, uh, the doctor's mother, uh, disgusted with who, I would assume she's disgusted with who Pruitt has become. And she takes a gun and shoots him in the head, which doesn't really kill him because he's a vampire, uh, but knocks him down for a, a good bit. The actual angel sees this and gets upset and takes Millie for a ride miles in the sky and kills her. Thanks for <laughs> Enjoy your ride. <laughs> yeah. Um, Aaron Green, uh, the doctor, and a few others are able to escape. Uh, Riley's younger brother, Warren, Lisa Scarborough, the girl who was in a wheelchair who can now walk, and uh, Riley's mother actually all make it out. They kill Bev, Bev Keen, who was hiding from all this chaos, you know, being so self-proclaimed and self-righteous and, you know, willing to submit to the will of God hides from this event. So Aaron Green just blasts her in the chest with a gun, and they walk away. And five minutes later, Bev Keen is resurrected as a vampire as well. Uh, and I think it's important to note as well. Um, so when, uh, the grandmother, I guess the young, young grandma, uh, when the angel takes her, he like, they initially lock the church doors and when he takes her, he like busts them open. The, the main doors at the back of the church, he like breaks them down and that's important for the intent of why they they like wanted the church locked up for mm -hmm. a reason yeah true yeah i was just gonna get to that so like pruitt laying there on the floor bleeding out of his head with a bullet and then through his head um but still conscious as he's a vampire you can kind of see like as bev is like giving instruction to open the church doors and let all these vampires out that was not the plan that pruitt had he wanted to keep everybody there 
But Pruitt being disabled, Bev kind of took over leadership just as she had when his mental state was failing in his elderly age and just kind of made a call on her own and let all these vampires out. And you can see it in Pruitt's face. Like, he's not happy with this decision, but he has a bullet in his head and he can't really do anything about it. Yeah. Um, Because even though he's a vampire and he's immortal, like, it does take some time to heal from that wound. Think think Wolverine. Yes, essentially. (laughs) Um, So I wrote down with that, it's like, I kind of felt like Pruitt was, that was like the first time he was really questioning, like, what he was doing. And question, like maybe seeing the error in his ways and the way he was going about things and maybe things were misinterpreted and so on and so forth. So that ends episode six. On to the final episode seven. Um, Millie was killed by the vampire, but taking communion like she has been doing, she is resurrected as well. She then reunites with Pruitt into the church and they share a short sentiment with each other because they've obviously known each other since you know, childhood, both being on the island. Um, the town is now in vampire chaos. All these vampires are set loose on the town. They're attacking everybody who isn't a vampire, either killing them outright or turn like sucking their blood and killing and turning them into vampires as well. Um, so it was Aaron's Aaron green, Sarah gunning, and the people that made it out of the church then come up with this plan. Like nobody can get out of this, can get off this island. If any, if one of these things makes it off the island, like this is going to take over the world. Like this, is, we can't let that happen. So they come up with a plan to burn the boats and make sure nobody can leave except for Warren and Lisa, the two children. They have a canoe and they basically go float offshore while all this chaos is happening. Um, Bev Keen and her posse of vampires, her inner circle, decide something to do with Revelation and the fire and destruction. They decide, oh, we're going to burn every single building as a cleanse of this area except the rec center. So everything's going to be... So they intentionally burn all the buildings down on the island. The whole island's ablaze except for the rec center. Um... Yeah, they're trying to flush people out too. I think yeah. it yeah, it started as like the the cleanse, and I think the fires were symbolic also, sy- symbolic of that. But also, um, I think w- one of the main things was to try to flush people out of their homes, and then it just totally the vampires just totally went with it, and they just started burning everything. Yeah. So yeah, they're burning all the buildings and. We get to where they're flushing out Annie Flynn, which is um, Riley's mother, Aaron and Sarah. Annie goes out to confront uh, Beverly, who's there burning down their house, and uh, the re- while the rest escape, and basically just tells uh, Beverly Keen what most people, a lot of people on the island, were thinking: like you're a self-righteous bitch, and you present yourself as like you know, a child of God and you're basically self-serving and you're not a really good person. And she recognizes that she's stalling. And in order to save her sons and other people's lives, she takes a knife and stabs herself in the neck just because she knows the blood is going to drive the vampires crazy and the others escape. Then flash to another scene back with Pruitt and Millie, which is Sarah's mother, the doctor's mother, um, who is brought back to her 
best age now that she's a full vampire. Um, you then start to hear Pruitt and her talk, and you get the full blast of really the past of their relationship. Um, it is divulged that Pruitt is actually Sarah's biological father. Spoiler alert. Um, they had some kind of affair. Um, so they talk about that. Pruitt's kind of reviewing like everything that led up to this moment. And, you know, I think he's kind of getting a dose of reality right now where he thought he had, you know, this is going to be God's will. And this as a priest is what I was supposed to do in the name of God. And I think he kind of comes down to earth a little bit and realizes, you know, when it really boils down to it, I just wanted to save you and Sarah, my, our daughter. And their own daughter doesn't know that Pruitt is her father just because of the shame of it all and everything. It would pretty much ruin everybody's life. <laughs> um, but he basically, you know, it boils down to basically like Pruitt loved Millie, obviously. And this whole time, like they've lived a fake life up to this point and he wanted basically a second chance to do things right with Millie and her daughter and their daughter. Um, so that was a pretty big shocking factor in the show. I think at that point, you know, Pruitt really starts to see like, you know, maybe we went about this the, the incorrect way. Um, with Pruitt kind of being in this state of, you know, going over everything he's done and kind of, he's almost pulling a 180 on it. He actually does say like, you know, we went about this the wrong way. Like this is wrong. We, we, this wasn't the way it was supposed to be. Bev is hearing this from Pruitt and kind of feels betrayed. And she basically is like, well, the hell with you. If you don't want to go through with this, then, you know, have fun with you and, your, your lady friend there, and you guys are going to enjoy the sunrise and die. Um, Bev kind of takes over the leadership because she's in control of the rec center, and that is the only building left standing at this point. Um, she becomes extremely judgmental, as she always has been, and basically even though people have been turned into vampires and the only place to go is the rec center, she's like, well, you live the life of sin, and you're a bad person, and... Because of that, like you're not a blessing. You're you're a curse to this, and we're not going to let you come in. And you're just going to burn up in the sun. So you kind of start seeing some questioning, because even though all these people have been turned into vampires, and they do have like that crazy craving for thirst of blood, they're still they still have their personality. You know, in other um, in other vampire movies and stuff like that, like they're all semblance of their past self is kind of gone. I don't think that was the case in this where they were, you know, pretty much the same people just altered. So you start seeing some hesitation from the other people doing that. Um, you then see the shocking, uh, revelation of, uh, Aaron green walking out of the rec center with a gas can and as soon as she steps out of the door from spraying gas everywhere, the angel, the original angel, flies in and just buries her into the ground and starts attacking her and feasting on her blood. And Bev thinks everything is fine. And Hassan is in on this well as well, trying to burn down the rec center. 
but they stop them before they're able to do so. And lo and behold, it is Hassan's son, who is a vampire at this point, um, you know, basically seeing that, yeah, this is all screwed up. Yo, Christianity's whack. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's a, that's whenever yeah. I remember whenever that, that scene. That's what I said. <laughs> that's hilarious. That yeah, that pretty much sums it up. <laughs> <laughs> so the rec center is burnt to the ground. The vampires now have no place to hide from the dawn, and everyone just kind of goes about their way, being like, "Okay, well, we're all going to die." Um, and that's essentially what happens at the end of the day. Um, everybody is burnt up. In the dawn, Bev is gone. Uh, Hassan is not a vampire. He's just, uh, he got shot to prevent him from burning down the rec center. Um, And his son ended up doing it anyway. Um, I like the scene of their death. They're on the beach facing east, which I believe is an Islamic thing whenever they pray. Um, And obviously the sun rises in the east. Sun rises. uh, Hassan keels over from a bleed out. And his son bursts into flames, praying to their god. Um, Millie and Pruitt. Um, oh, I kind of missed a big thing there. Uh, while they were trying to burn down the rec center, Sarah Gunning was trying to burn down the actual church. Um, she was shot by Sturge to stop her from doing so. And uh, she was killed. They tried to revive her with the blood, but knowing what that did, she spit it out. And she just would have rather died as a human. The church is burnt down. Um, Millie and Pruitt take their daughter to what was said to be her favorite spot, which is just this little bridge in this little marsh area to watch the sunrise. Obviously, they burn and die. Uh, pretty um, powerful scene there. Uh, during their talk in the church between Pruitt and Millie, he mentions to her, like, if you just would have asked me, I would have taken off this collar and I would have followed you anywhere. Um, and Millie goes on to explain, like, I, I just, I wasn't going to do that to you. I wasn't going to do that to our daughter. And I wasn't going to do that to her husband at the time. So um, I thought it was pretty powerful that last scene before they burst into flames. Uh, it shows Pruitt taking off the collar right before they die. Uh, I thought that was pretty powerful. And that is pretty much it. At the end, the last people remaining who are not vampires are Warren, who is Riley's little brother, and Lisa Scarborough, who was the um, girl in the wheelchair who was walking because of the blood of the vampire. They watch their island burning and... Uh, at the, I think the very last thing that, that she says is she goes, I can't feel my legs. Mm-hmm. I also forgot to tell you that while Aaron Green was attacked by the angel, he's feasting on her blood. She comes up with the idea of having a knife and cutting holes in the angel's wings. fleshy bat wings. Yeah. So she's sitting there uh, cutting holes in the angel's wings as he's feasting on her blood, you know, he can feel it, but he's in such a feeding frenzy that he kind of ignores it. It's like a shark. And what's that? It's like a shark almost. That yeah. Whenever whenever it feeds in the show, it's just, every it's totally tuned out, everything else. It's just 
feasting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, but by doing so, the angel can't fly away and burst into flames. As presumably, he is seen fleeing west. He's able to fly, but very poorly. He's seen fleeing west, and you know, thirty miles is a long way to go with the as fast as he was flying. And yeah, I mentioned the whole thing about how Lisa says after the sun comes up that she cannot feel her legs anymore. Yep. So because um, she hasn't had communion is, in a bit. <laughs> yeah, I will um, say. My one hypothesis was that it was kind of like a, um, oh God, it kind of, you know, like a, like a hive mind of sorts or like, um, I'm trying to relate this to something, but like the head of honcho, I'm going to call it a vampire now, not an angel, the head honcho vampire, I'm going to infer that it got roasted to shit in the sunrise yeah. because all of the blood that everyone consumed on the island and, you know, subsequent all came from him as an originator. And so they were all tied to him in some way. And as soon as he got zapped, boom, yeah. done. That's a common thing in, in really any vampire lore. It, a lot of times, if a master vampire converted a bunch of people or has a bunch of thralls and you kill that master vampire, then all of all of the ones that he converted and or his thralls, his or her thralls also get killed simultaneously. So again, sort of a hypothesis. Not sure if that actually happens. 